0: Good morning, uh, my name is Carlos Griego, you guys, some of you guys know me as Los, um, I am currently a pastor here at Desert Springs Church, and um, the, as Ryan prayed, uh, I am uh, being sent out from Desert Springs to pastor and plant um, Redemption Church, a new church plant from Desert Springs that will be a starting our first Sunday, Lord willing, on January 22nd in Rio Rancho. Uh, So if those of you could keep that plant and keep me and my wife in your prayers, we would much appreciate it because we very much need it. Well, we talked about last week how as a church planner, I get really stoked about um, preaching from the book of Acts. Uh, It has much of my heart's affections, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, empowered mission, and church is starting. It's like, Like I said last week, that's the love language of the church planter. Um, And so if you want to turn there, we will be in Acts. Just turn to the first chapter of Acts if you want to. Um, You can kind of just stay there if you'd like for the rest of the sermon, because we'll have the verses I'll be reading from up on the screen, because I will be all over the place, and good luck trying to keep up. You'll get to one place and I'll be somewhere else. So um, just for your own ease, um, we will have the verses up on the screens. Well, oh, really quick, while you're going to chapter one, just really, Acts, we talked about this last week, is a sequel. It's written by Luke, the beloved physician. He's writing to a guy named Theophilus. Uh, Theo is this upper class guy that wants to know more about Jesus. He wants to know more about this movement that's starting. I mean, really, the book of Acts covers over 30 years of the early church. And so he's seen all of this and he wants to know more about. Um, who is this Jesus and what about this church that's starting, that's going? And so the book of Luke is actually Luke's account to Theophilus about Jesus' life, ministry, time on earth, uh, his death, his resurrection. And now Acts is really from his ascension on. Jesus' work is still about Jesus. The book is still about Jesus. Like every book in the Bible is about Jesus. The book of Acts is about Jesus, the ascended Lord Jesus, working through the power of the Spirit, in the lives of disciples spreading the name of his glory, his gospel to the ends of the earth. The thesis verse, the guiding verse we talked about this last week, of the whole book of Acts, and really for us as well, is Acts 1.8. This says, Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus, talking to his disciples before he sends them out. It says, but you will, be, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We have to keep that before us whenever you look at the book of Acts. Because that is the guiding roadmap of the book. Again, we talked about last week, it's a promise. It's not a request, it's not a hope that Jesus had. It was a promise. You will be my, deci- my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, end of the earth. And it is a promise to us as well who follow him. And it is a call on us as well who follow him. Still 2,000 years later. Second part of Acts is we will look, have, we'll have, we're going to talk about the aspects of the mission. So, that first underline is aspects of the mission. That's kind of what we're talking about today. Last week we talked kind of about the five kind of foundations of the book of Acts, kind of the marks of the early church, marks of the book. This week we're going to look at the second part of Acts and kind of look at the aspects of the mission. But here's the thing we need to realize about the book of Acts. The book of Acts is totally relevant to us today. It's not a history. It's not just looking back at what was done then. It's how the church in so many ways should function today, how the church should move on mission today. It's, it's a descriptive about the early church. It's describing. It's not prescribing anything, so we don't necessarily take exactly what they did and say we've got to do exactly the same way or well, we're in a different time, a different place. But there are principles that we can take away from the book of Acts apply to our lives because as Christians we are no different than these early Christians were we are called by Jesus and if you are called by Jesus you are sent by Jesus if you don't believe you are sent by Jesus you may not know Jesus you're called by Jesus you are sent by Jesus to go and spread his message proclaim his gospel so the second part again will be we'll look at the aspects to the mission The first aspect I want to talk about is that the mission is universal. First nine chapters highlight this movement growing from just a small group of, like we talked about last week, just a bunch of losers. I mean, they're not CEOs. They're not innovative, creative. They're just a bunch of blue-collar dudes that don't get anything right usually. It starts with them. In Jerusalem, which was not a thriving metropolis in this Roman Empire, it wasn't Antioch, it wasn't Rome, it wasn't Alexandria. So it was a bad location, starting with a bad group of guys if you're talking to the Harvard Business Review. And we talked about how Jesus does that intentionally because it's about his glory. It's about his power in messy people's lives. It's not about location. It's about who he is and what he can do. Through what we would look at and say, that's impossible, Jesus says, just watch. So the first nine chapters highlight this movement growing quickly. It goes from these few ragtag dudes to thousands. Pentecost, there's 3,000. It just grows and grows and grows. But here's the thing. It grows in the first nine chapters, really within the city walls of Jerusalem it grows within primarily Jewish circles. They're proclaiming the gospel within their Jewish ethnocentric kind of circles. And this was the norm. It was what was to be expected that salvation was reserved for a particular type of people, the Jewish people. In this day, there were two types of people. There were, biblically speaking, Jewish people Gentiles. You're one or the other. You're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. And for apostles, this was still a movement within the Jewish people. It was not a movement that was necessarily extending out to the Gentiles. That was not their default position. That was not their thought, was that this movement is going to go out to them. We need to proclaim the gospel to them. It was staying within the circle. And in chapter 10, we see how God so often does shatters the box in that circle maybe we so often can put him in. Chapter 10 starts with a story of Cornelius and Peter. Cornelius is a centurion. This is what a centurion was. He was a Roman soldier. He wasn't a noble Roman soldier, so he didn't just start um, with the nobility and take a generalship. He started from the ground up. started as a foot soldier and worked his way up, and now as a centurion... He had, he had um, soldiers under him, probably about upwards of 80 soldiers under him. So he had some clout, he had some respect, he was a leader. And he says he was a God-fearer. What this meant was he was an uncircumcised Gentile who still prayed and worshipped and gave alms in a way that, that the Jewish people saw as acceptable. It's like, you're not in but you're on the right road. But he was still a Gentile. Well, it's during one of these times of prayer that he has a vision from the Lord. The Lord tells him he needs to go see a man named Peter. And Peter will tell him what he needs to hear. Well, he sends some of his men to go find this Peter so he can hear these words of life. Well, Peter's getting ready for dinner, and while these guys are coming, Peter doesn't know they're coming. He's getting ready for dinner. He goes up on the roof, falls into a trance, has his own vision. Let me read what this vision was in chapter 10. It says, And Peter he saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the Lord came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. There's a couple aspects of the story I like. One is there's a little bit of, I, I see a little bit of humor in it. In that this is Peter, this is dude that's always running his mouth off. I, I, I kind of resonate with Peter because I'm a lot like him. Usually I'm, stuff that comes out of my mouth and my, my brain's still trying to catch up to what I just said. Um, sometimes for good, sometimes not so good. Um, filter doesn't quite kick in yet. So I feel a kinship with Peter in a lot of ways. And there's a scene in the gospel accounts where Jesus is asking, who do people say I am? They're saying, they say, you're a prophet. They say, you're Elijah. And he says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, you are right, Peter. And on that truth, that's where I will build my church. And then the next line, Jesus goes, I'm going, talks about going to the cross and dying. And Peter goes, no, no. Not going to let that happen. And, Peter, and Jesus, who just said, You're right, now says, Get behind me, Satan. To Peter. So Peter's always that guy that's like two steps forward, 15 steps back. Well, <laughs> uh, I can see this in this that it's like another quiz for Peter. He sees these animals, not, according to the law, can't eat them, can't touch them, unclean, it'll make him unclean. The Lord says, Eat it. <laughs> He's like, Hmm. No, I don't touch what's unclean. And you he, and he hear the Lord say to him, What God has made clean, do not call it common. He's like, oh, all right. Mess that one up again. Well, it says Peter comes out of trance, and he has no idea what this vision's about. He's like, is, is that about dinner? Is that, what are you cooking for dinner? What, what, what's this vision about? It says at the time he's coming out, the men from Cornelius arrive at Peter's house. So God is sovereignly working through all of this. Men arrive, ask for Peter. Peter comes down. They take Peter to Cornelius. Cornelius explains his vision, and then it clicks. Peter gets that the vision wasn't about food. It was about who he thought was eligible for salvation. Who he thought was savable. Who he thought was near to God and was worthy of hearing the message of the gospel. He gets it. It says he gets it right here and. um Verse 34, he says, Peter opened his mouth to truly understand that God shows no partiality. He gets it. He's like, Whoa. God's here to save everyone. All kinds of people. All types of people. It's not for me to judge who is far from God and who is close to God. The Gentiles are to receive this message of the gospel as well. So Peter proclaims the gospel. Cornelia, Cornelius hears it and is saved. Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his people there and just like Pentecost and speaking in tongues and um, the apostles and the leaders are amazed there. Well, throughout the next few chapters, more and more Gentiles get saved. More, there's Hellenists. Those are um, just Greeks and they are saved because of some refugees who, f- who have fled from chapter 8. After Stephen is killed, we, we read last week that um, the church scattered to Judea and Samaria. Well, some went And they preached the gospel, and they preached usually just to Jewish people. It says, but a few actually preached to the Hellenists, to the Greeks there, and they got saved. The hand of the Lord was on them, and they got saved. So all of a sudden, peoples from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of nationalities are being saved. People outside of where the leaders had put the eligibility of salvation are being saved. But in chapter, end of chapter fourteen. Paul and Barnabas are coming back from missionary term. They're explaining this to the church, saying the Gentiles are being saved. They're following Jesus. God is doing a work among them. In chapter fifteen, you see how the church responds because this was new. This was not expected. They're like, "What? Wait, this came. This seems out of left field." It really wasn't since the time of calling of Abraham. You're going to be a blessing to all the nations. But to them, they're like, "Wait a minute. This is outside what we think should happen." And there's some that come and go. Okay. Gospels come to them. They got Jesus. They need to be circumcised too. They still need to play by the rules. Jesus and the traditions. So the church convenes to talk, leaders talk. And Peter's response is awesome. So the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This is in chapter 15. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he has made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But... We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Peter stands up. He says, Hold on. How do we think we are saved? We are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. That's how they are saved. That's the only way to be saved. There is nothing more needed. There is nothing to add to this. They have received the Holy Spirit as we have received the Holy Spirit. They are depending on grace just as we are depending. Let's not get it twisted. We are depending on grace and grace alone that comes from God. It is Christ alone who saves It is his work, his finished work on the cross where we find salvation, not all these other things. God doesn't play by our rules. God doesn't play by our judgments of what is acceptable and what isn't. Friends, do we believe this? We can learn from this. Are there people in our life that we go, they're just too far from God? It's not even worth proclaiming the gospel to them. Do we pick and choose who will accept the gospel message based on our judgments, based on what we think? Or do we think that there's some people, yeah, they might be Christian, but they need to do this first. They need to stop doing this. They need to stop living like this. They need to change this hear what Peter says. They need Jesus and him alone. The call of a Christian is not to look like a Christian before you're a Christian. The call is to go to the feet of Jesus and plead the blood of Christ and that alone and trust in it. That's for all of us. Tradition, how you were brought up, How many Bible verses you have memorized does not add to your salvation or save you. Christ and Christ alone does. It does not make you, before God's eyes, more holy. Christ is on you. You are holy because of him. There is transformation, yes. There is looking more and more like Jesus, yes. But we don't. Start the transformation before we actually meet Jesus. And we don't expect others to either. So the mission is universal, it was going out to all different peoples. Holy Spirit conquers all cultural barriers. Paul mentions in Ephesians that the wall has come down. The mission is also diverse point 2 see as the gospel spreads out to all the nations it now must be explained in understandable ways to each group this is why we have four very different gospel accounts different in how they're explained not different in the substance same Jesus same gospel message but Matthew is talking to a primarily jewish audience who are waiting for the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament. So Matthew keeps looking back saying, thus fulfilled this prophecy, thus fulfilled this prophecy, thus this was pointed to this, and Jesus is it. Because the people that read it would understand. They would get it. They'd go, oh wow, that is the Messiah. Okay, that is pointing to the Messiah. Okay, that is Jesus being fulfilled. That is, because they understood the Old Testament. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, is being, is being read to and written to Gentiles who don't have a, background in Old Testament. So there is hardly any Old Testament references in the Gospel according to Mark, and it's a fast-paced event-laden account. It's just, boom, one to another, one to another, here's another event, here's another event, here's another event. Because the crowd, they just want to know who Jesus was and what he had done, and what that meant. So they go from event to event to event to event. And when he does explain, when he does talk about some Old Testament or some traditions, Mark actually explains it too, because he didn't expect his audience to understand it. We see this play out in the book of Acts. One instance of this is Paul with his young disciple Timothy. It says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul takes his young apprentice Timothy. They're going to go talk about Jesus to some Jewish people but they know Timothy's background. And so the issue that's going to come up right away is why isn't he circumcised? What about circumcision? They're not even going to get to Jesus and Paul wants to get to Jesus. Paul wants the issue not to be circumcision. He wants the issue to be Jesus. So he says, we're not even going to deal with that this time. Let's just circumcise you. And I've discipled a lot of young men. I've had coffees with a lot of young men. I've never had that kind of conversation with any young men. I would be interested in being a fly on that wall, like young Timothy. You know, just this, Yeah, let's go get him. Let's go. Let's go see Jesus transform. Let's go, Paul. What do you want to do? Where are we going to go? Okay, we're going to go and proclaim. Okay, I'm ready. I I I've been practicing. I got I got my speech. I'm ready to go. I've been studying. I'm, oh man, I want people to, to meet Jesus. What, what What do you think we need to do? Well, first, here's the first thing you need to do. You get circumcised. <laughs> okay because Paul didn't want that to be a stumbling block before you get to the actual stumbling block that is Jesus. He didn't want to set up any obstacles before he got to Jesus. doesn't mean Paul agreed with circumcision. In Romans, he says circumcision isn't anything. It's circumcision of the heart. But he didn't want there to be an issue that he wouldn't be able to get to the gospel with those people. Probably one of the best examples of this is in... Acts 17, Paul goes to the Aeropagus. Here's the Aeropagus. It was also called Mars Hill. It's just this place. It's just like this Harvard um, round table discussion. It's where these men in Athens would come, philosophers, really smart dudes with letters after their name would show up. I mean, these are guys that use words that I can't spell, but they know what it means and they know how to spell them. And they're just using them. They're in this place talking. They want to know the newest ideas, the newest philosophies, the newest thoughts. Because there was a premium on thoughts and ideas in Athens. And Paul's been invited to come and speak there. And some are already dismissing him. They call him a babbler. Which means basically, we just don't want to, you're not even worthy to be listened to. Now this was a guy, a, a, a scholar. This was a very smart man that Paul, Paul was. But again, he was just, oh, he's from Jerusalem. We, oh, just a babbler, he's going to talk. Paul comes, stands at Mars Hill before all these philosophers, all these Greeks and these intellectuals. And here's what he says in Acts 17, starting in verse 22, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which we will... He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here's what Paul did. He spent time walking around Athens before he went to talk. He saw all the gods. He went around looking for the theology and the doctrine of the city. Because here's the thing. Everything has a doctrine or theology associated with it. Everything. Because we're made in the image image of God. Everything is a doctrine or a theology that we associate with. If you watch car commercials, some have the doctrine that life equals fun, so get a Jeep and go off-roading. Some say life is the doctrine of comfort, so you can have the seat that cools you down and heats you up all the same time. Some have the doctrine of efficiency and budget and economy, So you can get 60 miles to the gallon and save money. Everything has a doctrine. So Paul just walked around the city looking for the doctrine and theologies of the city. He sees these statues of gods. And he goes in with that. He says, there's one unknown. Because see, here's in in Rome, this time, they had thousands of gods. All kinds of gods. So many that they had an unknown god just in case they missed one. So in case they had missed that one, they go, oh, no, you're that one. The unknown one, we used to know your name, but it's there. And Paul goes in there saying, let me tell you about this one you say is unknown. He is the true God. The maker of heavens and earth and everything else in it. And then he contrasts it with what they believe God is like. Because in Rome, and Athens, they would believe that gods are petty. That the gods are needy. The gods are far off and they just, all they need from us is worship and adoration. That's how they survive. That's how they live. Without worship and adoration, the gods die. And what Paul is saying is, I see this. Let me tell you about the true God. He needs nothing. You think the gods need temples to live in? This, the true God does not need anything. He is not dependent on you. He made you. He created you. For the first time, they start to realize that the God of the universe demands worship because he is worthy, not because he's needy. Paul goes in there and he shows how the gospel is what they are looking for, it's what they're grasping for, but how sin has covered it. He goes in there he shows how the gospel rejects their culture, rejects their ideas of God, but also shows how it redeems some of their culture, realigns it back to who God really is. But here's how He did it. He did it by investigating the city. He did it by understanding the people He was trying to talk to talk about with to talk to Jesus talk about Jesus with. He cared. He asked questions. Do we ask questions of people around us? Do we care about our neighbors and our coworkers and what drives them, what moves them? What is their passions? What is their desires? What is their fears? Are we watching the culture around us and understanding what the gods of this culture are and how the gospel comes in and confronts it? rejects it, redeems it. This involves actually loving people. This involves actually sitting and knowing people and wanting to know about people. Or do we assume that everyone has the Christianese to English dictionary at home? That everyone understands The verbiage of Christianity. Let me tell you, they don't. I know because I don't. I'm still, I think I'm still like in stage two of Christianese. I'm still learning. But my first year of being a Christian, VBS came around. People were talking about VBS. They were talking about Disciple Now. I thought they were talking about TV station. I know what VBS was. But you know what I didn't know also? When they talked about atonement, what they meant. What they, when they talked about sin, I, I, I had concepts, but I was still learning what that meant. I didn't get it. I didn't understand the terms. Are we willing to sit down with people and instead of just giving them the tired one-liners... And expecting them to have defined it, do we actually sit and say, This is what this means? This is what this means? This is what this means? And do they know that we care about them and we actually want to know them and love them and be with them because we have felt the love from Jesus that we have to share? See, it's not about changing the gospel. None of this, there was always the same gospel and the same Jesus but it was knowing the different audiences and different contexts and how to speak to each one. Because the main thing they wanted, they didn't want them to learn Christianese. They wanted them to, to learn Jesus. They didn't care if they could say the right things to the right people, look the right way, dress the right way, smell the right way. They cared if they knew Jesus. And so they wanted to explain Jesus and make sure they understood Jesus. And they took time to learn how to explain Jesus. The church learned this from their leaders, learned it from their ultimate leader, Jesus, who came down from perfect perfection in heaven to the mess that we know as humanity. The the church learns it from the leaders of the church that are under Jesus, the elders, the pastors. Number three is the mission needs leaders. One striking aspect of the book of Acts is the leaders. These ragtag bunch of dudes and leaders that Jesus molds them into. A really awesome piece of this is seeing Paul's leadership in chapter 20. In chapter 20, he's saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, for the church he helped plant. But he knows that the pressure's coming down, the name of Jesus is getting more and more animosity, and he knows that this is probably the last time he sees them. So he's saying his farewell to these elders that he loves, this church that he cares about. And we see what a leader looks like, what a biblical leader looks like in Paul's speech. There's a few points just to just cover quickly. And first one is, just, man, leaders are stewards. I think the key to this whole speech in Acts 20 is in verse 28. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Again, he's talking to the elders and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Paul is saying, watch your life. Watch the flock. But know that it's not your flock. It is Jesus's. Jesus purchased it with his blood. He's got a lot invested in it. The Holy Spirit has sovereignly put you over them. Not your talents, not your skills, not your wealth. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's a soberness to this. As an elder here at Desert Springs and an elder getting ready to plant redemption, there's a soberness that we are, as pastors, elders over Jesus' people. We are not pastors over our flock. We are stewards under the good shepherd. We are under shepherds under the good shepherd. We are leading people on his agenda, not ours. We are caring for his flock, not ours. And we will one day answer to him. And this is very weighty to think about, but one day Jesus will ask, how did you do with the flock that I purchased with my blood? How did you lead? There's a waitingness there that Paul makes sure the Ephesian elders know. There's a waitingness there for the pastors of desert springs and churches around the city. Number two, leaders are to be bold in declaring the gospel. Paul kind of repeats it a couple of times. He says in verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. 27, he says, For I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pastor's aim, pastor's agenda is simply this. Proclaim the gospel and point people to Jesus. Make Jesus the center. Do not shrink back, but be bold in the proclamation of who Jesus is. If we are up here on a Sunday and we don't proclaim Jesus, we have failed. We are to be bold in proclaiming Jesus in our homes and the church and in the world. That is our message. That is what the message we've been giving is the gospel. He is the center and purpose for Paul's ministry, and he is the center and purpose for ours. The three leaders are to protect from those that would distract or distort the gospel. Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his blood. Again, they're stewards. And listen to this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. There's urgency in his voice. There's emotion. There's passion in his voice. And what he's saying is, I am going to leave and there are people that are going to come in, and even among you, who are going to try to take people away from Jesus. They are going to try to distract you from Jesus. They are going to try to distort the message of the gospel and move you away from Jesus. They are wolves. Wolves kill sheep. Jesus called himself the good shepherd. As pastors, we are under shepherds, under the good shepherd. And we are to put ourselves between the flock and the wolves. We're to follow the model of our leader, Jesus. This means at times there's aggression in this. I'm not talking about someone that just comes in wanting to know more about Jesus and they're just confused and they have doubts. And I'm talking about people that come in wanting to teach false doctrines, wanting to teach false things about Jesus. The elders are commissioned and told by Jesus, "You get them out. They are there to kill. They are there to take away." because if they take away Jesus, they take away everything. You sacrifice yourself for the flock. Now I know in our, our, la- our time, this is like this aggression, like whoa, because we've all been raised and like everyone's right, no one's wrong. We all get a little ribbon, even if we're really bad at it. We still get a ribbon, so we don't get hurt that we're really bad at it. You know, we, we don't keep score anymore at games unless you're like me and a competitive dad and I still keep score because everyone' the point of a game is to win and you need to know if you win if you didn't win Um, and so I know we all we kind of live in this pluralistic society that says let's just all hold hands what Jesus says is you love those but those that come in to proclaim something different and foreign and want to teach it want to say where sin is not sin want to say where I am not who I am you get them out leaders are to protect. Finally, leaders are to lead out. Paul concludes his talk with, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than receive. Paul, over and over again, he, in the epistles, he says, Follow me as I follow Christ. The leader is to lead out in mission. The leader is to lead out in in repentance. A leader is to lead out in taking the flock to the feet of Jesus. Leader's not perfect. Leader is a sinner who needs Jesus, but he is to lead out as example of a sinner who needs Jesus. The leader is to lead. The mission needs leaders. Let me just say this all those things I just said. Husbands fathers that goes for you in your home you are the pastor of your wife and your kids hear that the father of the church watched the leaders lead out in this they understood about being sent they understood that part of the aspect a big part of being sent was sacrifice for the mission requires sacrifice We can cling to the promise of being witnesses, that we are going to be witnesses to the ends of the earth and that the gospel will go forth. We can be encouraged by the truth and the reality that God himself, through the Holy Spirit, dwells within us, empowering us for the mission, making us more like Jesus, opening our eyes to who he is more and more. But we also must realize something else. Following Jesus and being the called and sent people of God that we are as Christians will not be easy. The books of Acts is filled with book of Acts is filled with stories of growth and, the, and this movement that's going everywhere. But with each story comes a story of sacrifice. And sacrifice comes in different ways. It's relational and it's local church sacrifice. In chapter 13, the Holy Spirit calls two of the leaders of the church of Antioch to go because they need to go and proclaim the gospel in different places to go and plant other churches. Church in Antioch lay their hands and send excitingly and joyfully. This now, if the Church of Antioch was thinking about the Church of Antioch, keeping Apollo and a Barnabas in the Church of Antioch and having them grow this church would be a strategic idea. Losing two strong leaders. That could hurt the Church of Antioch, but they were thinking something bigger. They weren't thinking Antioch. They were thinking Kingdom of God. So they laid hands, sent. Two of their best leaders. Sacrifice of money. Numerous places, the generosity of the churches. Uh, chapter 11. Agabus stands up, says, "Hey, famine's coming. We need to take a collection." Says those who were able gave, so that when the famine came a little while later, the church was able to still go. The church was funded. The church had food. The church, the needs of the church in Judea were met because of the generosity of other churches. And the churches, the local churches funded the mission. They funded the leaders for the most part to go and plant other churches, to go and plant the gospel elsewhere all over the Roman Empire. Their generosity is what fueled much of the mission as far as the finances go. The biggest sacrifice is probably more the norm of the sacrifice for the book of Acts, for the early church in Acts and for us. The sacrifice of comfort and safety. Here's the timeline of how the gospel reached the cities. Leaders come to the city, proclaim the gospel. People are transformed by the gospel. Other people don't like the gospel. They raise up a crowd, a riot starts. Leaders are then dragged out of the city and beaten, sometimes killed. That's kind of what happened in a few cities. That's just kind of like the cycle. There was no comfort and safety in the early church. It wasn't a thing that was taken for granted. It was not a thing clinged to. It was understanding, as Jesus had said, if we want to gain our life, we'll have to lose it. The stories of Peter in jail, James being killed. The whole book ends with a long story of Paul in prison being transported to Rome. Even there's a shipwreck involved in it. And he's getting ready to go before Caesar. This is not shocking or something unexpected of followers of Jesus. Just as they had heard, there will be witnesses and to the ends of the earth. They had also heard this from the Lord Jesus in the book of Luke. He's telling his his leaders, his disciples. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. This is how you're going to be the witnesses. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to mediate Meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by, my, by all for my name's sake. I don't think that's anyone's life verse in here, but yet that's what Jesus tells us to expect mission in the Christian life means picking up our crosses. It means following Him who was taken to the cross. It means pushing forward when it's uncomfortable and it means understanding that in this life here and now before we are in heaven, before we are with our Lord Jesus, in a fallen world, in taking light into darkness, the only stability we're going to have in our life is the instability of the mission. We have the stability of Jesus, but as far as Day in and day out, we shouldn't expect stability. But here's the thing. It wasn't a duty for this early church. It wasn't like, all right, this will do it. It was was a joy-filled sacrifice. Because it also meant understanding the joy of seeing people meet Jesus for the first time. Seeing the hopeless get an undeniable everlasting hope knowing that people will forever be taken out of the realm of darkness and put into the kingdom of the beloved Son. There was joy in this. Seeing Jesus move by the power of the Holy Spirit in lives before them was amazing. There was joy in it that the sacrifice didn't feel like a sacrifice anymore. The sacrifice was little compared to the joy that was there in seeing Jesus work in the lives of the people around them. Acts 15 is, leaders come back and they're talking about all the conversions of the Gentiles. It says it brought great joy to all the brothers. That Jesus' name was going out brought great joy. And that's what fueled, that's what excited, that's what made the sacrifice feel like not a sacrifice at all. John Piper says this, he says, Evangelism is a word used to describe the different ways God uses us, along with his word and spirit, to transform unbelievers into people whose great delight in life is to know and trust in him. Therefore, under God, our goal in evangelism is to be his instruments in creating new people who delight in God through Jesus Christ and who thus bring us great joy. There is no escape. If we, by God's grace, are successful in evangelism, We will be happier. Our joy in God will be increased. Does that imply that we are only out to get notches on our fishing pole that we can boast about without really caring for the other person's good? No. It is that person's infinite and eternal welfare that makes us happy. The only boasting we care for is in the glorious grace of God. He is at work in us and in the new convert to make us gradually into the kind of people who love God more and who therefore will inevitably make each other glad. That's the joy that fueled the sacrificial living of this church. They saw people meet Jesus. They saw God at work. They saw God transforming their neighbors, their family, the cities. There was discomfort involved, but it was, oh man, it's worth it. There's the unknown involved, but man, it's worth it. We ask, have we fallen into today's suburban culture of safety and comfort rule all? Everything in the world promotes comfort. The suburbs promote safety. But do we see the mission will mean that comfort and safety are things we have to hold with an open hand. This has hit me hard recently. I'm not the reckless church planner up here going, let's just go do it, come on! It hit me last week before the well. At the well I announced that in August it will be my, my last time at the well. I'll be handing it off and won't be going back to let the new let Gray kind of take it over and do what he wants and but here's the thing I just realized and I talked with Lauren my wife about this I was nine months into being a Christian when the well started up here at Desert Springs and I started going I, I just, I've been going almost every week since then I, I don't know my life without the well I don't know my Christian life without the well really I walked in here as a hungover unbeliever. I don't know my Christian life without Desert Springs Church, and I'm about to leave to go plant a church. I'm about to leave Desert Springs. I'm about to leave the well, and I'm am sc- scared. There's discomfort involved. I'm not a I'm not a spontaneous guy. I'm like my dad in a lot of ways. I mean, grew up. You know, we buy one shirt. We buy we buy five of the same shirts, just different colors, because we don't like change. But here's the thing: knowing that as we plant the gospel in Rio Rancho, there are people who are going to be transformed by Jesus, and that we're going to be able, I'm going to be able to see Jesus at work before us, changing people's lives, transforming people. We're 10 years ago this month, I got arrested for DWI. I was a hopeless case. I was one of those ones outside the box. That there could be someone sitting in jail right now who by God's grace, he will use Redemption Church to save and send out 10 years from now. Oh, that makes the discomfort and the sacrifice of leaving my comforts of Desert Springs light. It still hurts. There's gonna be tears. This is kind of like a blankie for me here of withdrawal twitches. But to see Jesus move, to see the Holy Spirit come over people and change them, that's a light sacrifice. I won't regret it. And that brings us to the final aspect. The mission continues. <clears throat> My um, first three weeks of being a Christian uh, Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring was out. Um, I didn't know anything about Lord of the Rings. I didn't know there was books about it. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know there was whole like civilizations that like speak the same language as the people in the book. I didn't understand it. I just knew it was it looked like a cool movie, cool effects. I want to go see it. Now if you've known Lord of the Rings movies, they're long. First one's like three hours. The last one is like 18 days. And so, I didn't know anything about it, so I'm watching it. I'm three hours into the movie, right? I'm, I'm work. It's like, this is, man, it's getting intense. You know, they're, they're heading to Mountain Doom to go through the ring, and it's like, oh. And here's how the movie ends if you've seen it. They're walking down the hill. They're walking down the hill, and the credits come on. They didn't get to the mountain yet. There's no giant battle scene at the end. They just walk, Frodo and his little friend. Him and Rudy are walking down the hill together, and I'm, I'm, and, then, and then the credits come on, and people are like, yeah! And I'm like, am I missing something here? They're walking down a hill. That's three hours for them to walk down a hill. Now I was later informed, there's two others coming out, and there's going to be closure. Well, I think the book of Acts is kind of like the first Lord of the Rings ending. it it ends with this giant story of Paul going to see Caesar. He's going to go proclaim the gospel of Caesar. He's going to go have defense before Caesar. And he's in jail. He's there in Rome. And here's the last two verses of the book of Acts. Paul, he lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's it. No, he went before Caesar. He's just walking down a hill. And here's the thing. Holy Spirit breathed out this word. I believe it was intentionally for us to understand. There's no closure because it hasn't ended yet. There's no closure. There's no final scene because it hasn't come yet. It's coming. But we're we're part of this journey. It's continuing with us 2,000 years later. We're the church now. We're the ones being sent out. We're to go plant churches. We're to go make disciples. We're to go see people transformed to the ends of the earth. There are still people who have not heard and tasted how good God is through his son, Jesus Christ. They have not seen their need for a savior and the atonement he offers and the forgiveness that is with him. So it continues. It ends unspectacular because we're part of it. We're the church today on mission, sent out, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us. The Holy Spirit that came down at Pentecost lives in us. The Holy Spirit that came down on Jesus lives in us. The Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives with us, empowers us to be on mission, to be expanding this gospel message, to expanding the kingdom of God by God's grace to the ends of the earth. It continues today. 2,000 years later, Jesus still tells us we will be his witnesses. So let's not leave the book of Acts with simply looking at what happened. Let's not leave the book of Acts with a better missional theology. But let's pray we leave the book of Acts with a missional reality in our lives. That we are on mission that we are seeing these marks and these aspects of the mission and saying they apply to us today as the sent people of God. We are going to sacrifice. We are going to be telling people who we would not pick to be saved. We are going to see Jesus move in amazing ways before us. Pastor Matt Chandler says this about the book of Acts. He says, the church needs to hear it like this. Jesus is saying to the church, I'm about to change the whole world. I'm about to transform lives that you would never believe could happen. I'm about to do miraculous things in the world, and you get to come along and watch. I'm going to work through you, and I'm going to do things that you would not even believe could be done, and you get to come along and watch. So let's come along and Let's believe he is mighty to save us. We're going to sing. Let's believe that as we sing that the world is watching and Jesus is working because he still lives and reigns today. Amen?